Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we're talking about tools to overcome alcohol cravings, how to create the pause between impulse and response, how to manage discomfort and find ease in discomfort when you want to drink and to get through that without starting over. My guest today is Mary Tilson. She's a professional recovery coach, a yoga and a meditation teacher, and the founder of Sun and Moon Sober Living. Mary's been in recovery since 2013. Prior to getting sober, Mary was the epitome of a high-functioning alcoholic and addict. She worked at a corporate career in digital advertising in Chicago while internally battling an addiction to alcohol, cocaine, and Adderall. After completing outpatient treatment at Hazleton, she began studying yoga and meditation to become a teacher. And Mary would later launch a retreat business that took her across the world from Southeast Asia to Central America to Africa. 
Mary's passionate about ending the stigma of addiction and sharing a holistic path to sober living. She offers group and one-on-one coaching, free guided meditation meetings for sobriety and hosts the Sun and Moon Sober Living Podcast. So Mary, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to connect with you again. I know it's great. And when we chatted earlier, we talked about how you can help our listeners find tools to overcome alcohol cravings. Because I know when you're just starting out, when you're getting four days, five days, seven days, the desire to drink is really strong and it does get easier later gets a lot easier, but that initial discomfort is something that can trip a lot of women up and causes them to just keep repeating that drinking cycle of saying they're going to stop and then going back to it. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so familiar with that vicious cycle and that feeling of being like on autopilot because you know, we tell ourselves we're going to stop drinking and then all of a sudden we're in the same cycle of drinking again. And it's extremely painful. It's extremely confusing, especially, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are also very high functioning and they're busy and it's like we can get all other areas of our life under control. So why can't we get the cravings under control? And One of the things that I find to be so incredibly beneficial when it comes to managing cravings is mindfulness Mm -hmm. and having a practice of mindfulness because, you know, in that cycle, there is the impulse, the craving, and then there is the action, the actual drinking. And I really love to train people. And I'll give one tool in particular, which I find to be really useful is the RAIN meditation Tara Brock teaches it often. I see you nodding. Are you familiar with that one? I am familiar with it, but I'm, you know, it's been a long time. So I'm excited to learn about it again. Yeah, I think it's a really great way for listeners just to consider how we can invite a little bit of curiosity into our experience of craving and start to create more spaciousness when we have cravings between that feeling arising and actually acting on it. And so Tara Brock teaches this. I know Dr. Judson Brewer, who's a neuroscientist who teaches a lot. He wrote a book called The Craving Mind, references a lot. But RAIN is an acronym that stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. And so that first step of just recognizing that you're having the craving is huge in itself, especially when we're used to being in that cycle, when drinking is our default as a response to stress, to notice that you have the craving to drink is huge. Well, so question for you. I mean, I feel like a lot of people, I know I did, you know, were pretty aware that there was a craving to drink. I mean, you know, when you start rationalizing at 4 p.m., like, actually, it's not a big deal. I can go, you know, uh, get a drink. I can go buy a bottle of wine or you know, you're really irritated that you're not drinking. Like, you're just like, oh my God, this fucking sucks. So do people have trouble recognizing that they're having a craving and what might they mistake that for? That is such a good question. Because you're right. I mean, we know that we want to drink in that moment, 
But that's where the step of investigation and curiosity becomes super important. So once we recognize that the craving is there and we're just allowing ourselves to be in the experience for even a moment and not acting on it, then we get to this step of investigation and getting really curious. And I'll give an example from my own life, which is probably relevant to listeners of I used to be so stressed at the end of a really long workday. I worked absurd hours when I was in digital advertising, sitting in my cubicle under artificial lights with so many different things to do, so many things happening simultaneously. And by the time I got home, I was just like, I need a drink. That's all I care about. And I'm going to drink because this is unbearable. And I was so stressed and burnt out by that point. But if you take a moment to actually get really curious about that experience, like, is what I'm really craving alcohol in that moment? Is that really what I need? Mm -hmm. And the truth is no, because the reason that I was craving alcohol was I was looking for relief for what was actually burnout. I was completely lacking rest in those moments. I was overstressed. I was not getting the same emotional connection to my friends and family because I wasn't making the same time for them anymore with this job. I was feeling undervalued and underappreciated at work. There was all these other factors that were actually creating that feeling of what I was interpreting as a craving for alcohol that I needed to drink. Yeah. And so the more you practice mindfulness and the more you train yourself to create this sense of spaciousness, I love that idea of the sacred pause, to actually have that conversation with yourself and get really curious about what's going on. That's when you learn to be able to really meet your needs for what they really are. Because I mean, alcohol was never going to be the solution. When I was super stressed to drink alcohol, as you know, it's like pouring gasoline on that. It makes you, you more stressed. You realize it when you're doing it, right? Because right. It, you know, it's almost like you mistake the craving or the, the anxiety that you think alcohol soothes because you're in withdrawal and it's creating that anxiety. And then it does kind of soothe that anxiety in that you stop being in withdrawal. But you, you're you so used to living that way, you don't realize that the substance is causing the symptoms that you're experiencing, that you think the substance kind of helps you resolve. One of the things, I mean, I love the step investigate because when women talk to me and they're like, I really want to drink, you know, sort of the first thing I always tell them it's like eat something like hunger is a yes. huge trigger blood sugar yes. dropping like just especially if women are like trying to diet because they don't like the way they look because they've been drinking right so then they don't eat so then it's really hard to overcome cravings but the second thing is like why why do you want to drink and a lot of women have never stopped to say well, my husband's pissing me off, or my kids are screaming because they're toddlers, or my commute was an hour and a half, or I'm completely overwhelmed at work. And they use alcohol because it's like the easy button to literally shut down your brain, you know? Yes. And I will acknowledge that in the moment, there is a relief there, you know, okay. it's going to it's it will give you that instant feeling of relief and whatever you're trying to get out of it. It's just that we we choose in that moment to go to that 
quick relief from the stress or whatever it is. And we pay the long-term consequence in a big way. And even, I mean, when I think back at that example from work, even going deeper than that, like, I think I was lacking a real sense of purpose in that job. Like, I don't feel like I was fully aligned with what filled me up, which is something that's really important in my life now. And I was numbing out from that completely because I was never taking the time to get quiet with myself and really listen to that. And so we can underestimate because we continue to function highly at work and nothing nothing huge has happened yet. But we can underestimate just how much we really do miss out on by just yeah. being in that place of having numbing being our constant way yeah. out, basically. I mean, and also I remember going to work and being totally overwhelmed and, you know, com- combination of too much work, plus anxiety, plus imposter syndrome, plus you name it, you know, fear-based stuff. And then coming home and literally when I drank a bottle of wine, once I looked back on it rationally, I was like, so basically I was running, running, running. And the minute I got home, I was trying to knock myself unconscious to not live my life. And then you're like, yeah, my life feels completely unfulfilling. And why aren't I happy? And it's like, yeah. And so I talk to a lot of women, they're like, it feels like it's just too much. And I'm often like, it is too much. Like any human being shouldn't be taking on this much. So many women do. And so it also is boundary work. You know what I mean? Once you investigate to be like, wow, this is too much. Well, that's exactly the thing, right? Because if we recognize the reason that I'm drinking is because I have all this stress at work that's become unmanageable, that with this schedule, I can no longer prioritize the relationships that really fill me up in the other aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. That means you need to have some uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, we've spoken about like this topic of leaning into discomfort, but it, it really does mean that you need to no longer just kind of take the easy way out and, you know, numb out with alcohol. And I think sometimes we, we trick ourselves into believing when we're constantly succumbing to these cravings and we're giving into the alcohol and we're drinking that, you know, I know I used to tell myself like, oh, I'm just doing whatever I want. Like, I felt like I was so free in my partying days, you know, (laughs) I was just like, oh, I don't care. Like, I don't mind that I'm going out, getting drunk, drunk, blacking out, whatever. But the truth is, I was the farthest thing from free in those moments. Like I was an absolute slave to my cravings. And that is a painful experience to be in, you know, because I think deep down we all know, like we all know, even if we think we're making a conscious choice, oh, I'm just going to have the glass of wine. I don't care. It's not that big of a deal. I think we all know what it feels like deep down to be a slave to our cravings. And it's not comfortable. Oh, yeah. And leaning into discomfort, there there's sort of a couple different aspects of it, right? One is the discomfort of going through the cravings. The other one is the discomfort of not people pleasing, of setting down boundaries or having people not be completely happy with you and sort of the fear that's on the other side. So I know that the RAIN method too is also sometimes useful, even in like, big board meetings or big meetings where you're like having that anxiety, panic, like, you know, oh my God, all that kind of stuff, right? Because it's something that you can do 
in a way that nobody notices, right? As opposed to going and doing yoga or like physically meditating in a way. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And that's such a good lead into the last letter, which is nurture. The way Tara Brock teaches it, some people teach it as note, but I love the I love the word nurture because it's that element of compassion and being so compassionate for ourselves. And I always encourage people like when you're having these experiences, especially when it comes to boundaries and people pleasing and you're criticizing and getting down on yourself, take a moment to pause and listen to those thoughts and listen to yourself as if you were listening to a friend, you know, and really sitting with someone that you love and you care about and ask yourself, is this how I would hold space for this person? <laughs> would I tell them to shut up and just get over it and like, of course not. Pull your shit together. Yeah. And... It's unbelievable. Yes. I mean, it's it brings up a lot for people. I know when we get into the topic of like the self-compassion piece, because when you frame it like that, it brings up a lot. And I know that that's what drives a lot of us to to drink in the first place is that critical voice and the beating ourselves up and, you know, just finding an escape from that. So to really cultivate compassion for yourself. And I love you know, there's this idea by Kristen Neff that there's two forms of self-compassion. There's um, tender self-compassion where we're really holding that tender, loving space for ourselves. But there's also fierce self-compassion, which is more action-oriented. So things like you mentioned, like establishing boundaries with our our work, you know, communicating our needs to people, and and um, and really loving and looking after ourselves in that way, and and being willing to say like, no, I I can't take on any more commitments right now. This is gonna take me way beyond my edge. Oh my gosh, can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you are going through it. I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah. So recognize, investigate. What's the A? Acknowledge? Recognize, allow. Allow. Yeah. We're going to pretend I didn't know how to spell <laughs> rain, okay? I do actually know how to spell <laughs> It's always easier right. when the letters are right in front of you. I know, right? Okay. Recognize, allow, investigate, and... Nurture. Nurture. Yeah. Nurture. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I always tell people when it comes to mindfulness based practices, 
And you can work through that practice in a meditation on your mat. As you said, you can also do it in the moment, which I love. But something that's so important when it comes to these practices like mindfulness and really so many forms of self-care is that it's not what you use like in the heat of the moment necessarily to put out fires. They're actually practices that you cultivate over time. So it becomes more like your default setting. So you have already cultivated this sense of spaciousness. So when you do feel, you know, that craving arise, you're able to create more space between impulse and action and interrupt those normal patterns. Yeah. Well, so I know a lot of women when they are craving, drinking, when they're, you know, like, screw it, I'm going to stop at the store, or there's a bottle in my house, and, you know, I just want to take a drink, or I'm out to dinner with girlfriends, and, you know, in the first 20 minutes, you order a non-alcoholic cocktail, and then once you're surrounded by other people drinking, it's like, oh, forget it, I'm just going to order something. How does this you know, sitting with discomfort, building up the discomfort tolerance, doing the RAIN method, like how does that work in the moment when it's so easy to give in to the impulse? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think whenever it comes to those scenarios, like say it's the scenario where, you know, you end up just picking up the bottle on the way home to work anyway. Usually it's not really just what's happening in that moment. It's everything that led up to that moment, you know, and that's why like learning to actually get to know yourself better through mindfulness practices, understand your nervous system and have these tools for self-regulation is so, so important. And so like, for example, I always encourage people to establish a morning routine where they're really taking time to check in with themselves. I'm a really big fan of yoga. It's part of my daily practice, but there are so many different forms of somatic embodied practices that you can do to really connect with yourself. But that kind of acts like those early, those first moments of the day, it's not only a way to set yourself up in a more calm and grounded place, but it's a way to really check in with yourself and notice, like if you pick up first thing in the morning that you're waking up with that little buzz of anxiety and you can really feel it in your body and you know how to like communicate with your nervous system on that level, you can feel there's a difference in your breath, there's more tension in your body and you have the tools in order to move some of that through you, whether it's through, whether it's, you know, by getting on the stationary bike, if it's the middle of winter and you have one in your house or going out for a walk, doing your yoga practice, like whatever your things are, and you can learn to work with that versus what so many people do, which is roll over, dive headfirst into their phone, emails, notifications, have a couple of coffee, cups of coffee, like push through the workday and just let that build and build and build. Then usually that's been the buildup that leads to the breaking point where all of a sudden you're at the liquor store and it's like, how did I end up buying this bottle of wine? Well, you're completely dysregulated and you don't have that access to your conscious decision making, not in the same way anyway, as if you had taken the time to really, yeah, look after yourself a little better throughout the day. I mean, I used to wake up with that like buzzing anxiety, that buzzing overwhelm. And it comes back at different points at like difficult, typically it's work stuff that tends to put me into completely overwhelm. Um, I am much better at setting boundaries and letting stuff go and sort of lowering the bar at home. Um, and 
but I, I used to have a lot of tr- trouble with work boundaries. And so I was not a yoga girl. I always wanted to be, but I was never, or like a sitting meditator, right? I have trouble kind of just sitting still for too long, even though I know it's something I should practice. But when you were mentioning that, I was like, okay, do have a couple practices that helped me in sort of a a different way. So I, you know, thinking back, I used to roll over, especially when I was feeling super overwhelmed. And I would do a quick like body scan and schedule scan and be like, okay, what do I need to do to take care of myself today? And it would depend on like, am I lonely? Am I anxious? Do I need to burn off some anxiety by working out? Um, Do I need to ask for help? And also, you know, the schedule scan is like, all right, I've got this and this and this and this, but I can carve out half an hour here and I can call my best friend on the drive home or I can order takeout and not cook dinner. And so that helped me. The other thing that helped me was I would set an alarm and like block off my calendar at work at like two o'clock every day for even 30 minutes, an hour if I could get it. And I would go for a walk outside and put my earbuds in and just, you know, it helped me decompress so that I wasn't working from the minute I got there to the minute I left and have like no time to sort of bring myself down in, you know, before I run Yes. And I think that is so incredibly important. Like I think so often people do say things like, oh, I'm not like a workout person or I'm not this. And it it feels so overwhelming when it's like, how I can't get to a, a workout class or a yoga class and carve out an hour and a half or two hours. I can't go for a run. I yeah, haven't run we put in so years, much pressure you know? on ourselves to do, at least I know, I don't know if you had this experience, but I, I remember oh, yeah, all the when things, I first got really. sober, it was like, no, I can't just get sober. Now I need to be like the epitome of wellness and have like, you know, the perfect clean diet. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually, I mean, there are little things you can do, like focus on deepening your breath, such simple breathing exercises. Like I love teaching people this three-part breath, which is so simple. It's just sending your breath all the way into your lower belly, the barrel of the rib cage up into your chest, and then just exhaling and letting it breathe out like a wave. And just doing that a few times, it can take two minutes. All right. So teach us how to do that. Like I'm pretty basic. Like do you breathe in through your nose? Do you let your belly expand? Do you breathe out through your mouth? Like how do you physically? Oh yeah, absolutely. So what I love to do, so if you're sitting upright in a chair or, you know, wherever you are, I also love to just use your hands and just place your right hand over your heart and just let your left hand rest over your navel And just making that contact with your physical body can be so grounding and just that really nice reminder to really just tune into your physical body. And then if you're comfortable and you haven't already, you can just start to close down your eyes. And just take a moment to really ground the energy through the base of your spine. So you can feel your sit bones start to anchor down into the chair, whatever is supporting you. And before you even do the practice, just notice as you breathe in through your nose where your breath inflates first. 
So if you do happen to feel more agitated and stressed in the moment, you might notice that your breath starts to feel more trapped up in your chest. And without putting any extra strain, as you inhale, just start to invite your breath to descend deeper into your lower belly. So just taking that full belly breath and just seeing what that feels like. And then follow the exhale all the way out through your nose. And notice the grounding and softening quality of the exhale. You might relax your shoulders down your back. And you can continue this process of just working with that deep belly breath. Or if you have a little bit more space, you might start to work with that three-part breath where you inhale through your lower belly and then feel the ribs start to expand and then breathing all the way up into the chest, feeling the breath lift through your palm resting on your heart. And then just exhaling in a very natural way, releasing the breath and releasing any tension you might be holding on to. And so you can repeat that process a few times, but you can just start to notice, do you feel any difference in your body just from taking that? (laughs) Yeah, I totally, and when you were saying notice where the breath is, it was totally up high. I mean, honestly, I feel very relaxed now, which is good. Um, People listening can't tell, but we were both like with our eyes closed, (laughs) breathing. Wow, the the most relaxing podcast I've done. Yeah, I could just do that the whole time. But (laughs) no, it's, you know, the noticing where our breath falls is so important because that was something that was really amazing to me in learning about this idea of befriending our nervous system. And I wish that that was an education that we all got in school. I think that so many of the issues that children are faced with in school would be resolved if we learned how to work with our breath, for example, because, yeah, what happens is when, you know, We live in a world now where we're constantly being stimulated and you could be sitting in front of your computer desk as I used to be in my office and get an email that activates your stress response. And we tend to associate that as just like a a mental stressor. You know, my, my boss emailed me, something is late, whatever it is. We think about that as a very like something that's happening in our brain. But the reality is there's a whole physiological response that starts to happen. Our breath gets shallow, our heart beats faster, you know, our muscles start to contract. And we've seen, you know, it's it's been very, very well studied that this these prolonged states of stress, even if they don't yeah. start as a physical stressor, have huge implications for our health over time. Yeah. And so knowing that and having those skills, something as simple as, you know, that three-part breath. There are other breathing practices that you can do that are just simply extending your exhales longer than the inhale. I mean, there are so many of them, but doing these simple practices, you can prevent some serious issues later on. I mean, addiction being one of them, of course. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. 
Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. I, I think that's interesting. I love that you said that it's not just mental, it's physical and the way you react to it. Because I remember, you know, back in the day after an election, I had all of my alerts on. So I would get breaking news alerts from the New York Times and CNN and all the others, NPR, whatever. And it would be pinging me and I would have this like stress reaction constantly. And I finally turned all of those off. I was like, I do not need to know in the breaking moment what is happening. And it's the same with email. I mean, you know, I had to stop checking my email every single evening and tell my boss on evenings and weekends, like, if it's really urgent, please text me because I'm, I'm trying not to pick up my phone and my email every time I stand up from the dinner table or every time I'm walking my daughter up to bed because it was just, I constantly felt that physical reaction to it, like that trigger. Yes. And that takes a lot of awareness that you even noticed it like happening in your body. Cause I think that we take that for granted sometimes, but it goes back to the boundaries conversation because unfortunately also, I mean, what amazes me is the way that all of these apps, social media being just one of them, but also the news apps now, like those, they have literally employed the top psychiatrists to make those addictive. And part of the reason that it works is that it floods us with stress hormones. Like it creates this addictive response in the same way that drugs do. And so having healthy boundaries with those things, you know, like I'm someone who I was just reading an article yesterday, actually on LinkedIn that was talking about how it was studying the health effects of observing all of these traumatic events in the news and just how that can be harmful over time. And I'm someone who really believes in staying informed. I think it's important, like definitely not turning a blind eye to what's happening in the world, but recognizing that now because we're so hyper-connected and you could be standing in the grocery store line waiting to check out and in that brief moment see something super traumatic that you weren't ready for and not even realize how much it's impacting your system and how dysregulating that can be is really potentially harmful, you know? So it's it would be much better to be in a position where you've set aside that time that you're going to read the news and take that in, in the same way that we set aside time for work. And then we know that we have our self-care practices so we can bring ourselves back and do what we need to do so we can calm down and regulate our system again. I completely agree with that because so much of the news is trying to do the like, play by play like a football game or a baseball game of everything that happens. And so I found TV really hard TV news as well. And so now I just read it. And I read it from a pretty neutral source that digests it in terms of like, yes, this happened, but what are the odds that it's going to lead to 
X, you know, and just kind of be like, okay, this, this isn't something that I need to deal with right now, or it is, but it's from a neutral place. So I can sort of be like, all right, I'm not going into overdrive from this while still staying informed. And, you know, not that this is all about the news. It's also social media and who you follow and how alarmist they tend to be. Um, but it, it is like taking care of yourself first and noticing what really stresses you out because we have enough stress in our lives that we don't need to purposefully trigger ourselves by what we opt into. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, that idea, like bringing back the idea of curiosity and noticing, like really taking a moment to notice how you feel on all different levels when you are exposed to that kind of thing. And when you're reading the news or when you see certain things on social media, because going back to that whole idea of like, you know, what is it that makes you give into that craving in the moment when you're sitting with a group of people and you go from mocktail to cocktail or you end up picking the bottle of alcohol up at the end of the night? Oftentimes it's the things that we really take for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. I know the news isn't good to take in too much of, but eh, and not really taking it seriously for what could potentially lead that lead to down the road. Oh my gosh. And I even, my husband and I have like beyond different tastes in what is entertainment, but he, I swear to God, like every zombie movie of the end of the world or the apocalypse or like whatever. And the books about like populations have been wiped out and survival things. That's what he, and guess what? He is completely doomsday end of day, you know, just this is going to lead to the breakdown in the supply chain or whatever it is. And in my free time, you know, I have the media tastes of like a 16 year old girl, you know, like I like the, the romance stories or just the interesting things. And I read basically, you know, there's chick chiclet, right. And so the funny thing is that, you know, I feel like I've got a much more optimistic view of life. And that might be, you know, nature and nurture, but I do not focus on all the worst case scenarios, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there's so much truth to that. Like our brains are being shaped so much by these like external impressions, the things that we choose to take in. And I think we take that for granted sometimes. Like that's a big part of the work that I like to do with people when it comes to changing up their relationship with alcohol. It's like, let's take an honest look at all of these subtle and more obvious messages that you're getting about alcohol and where it's being normalized. And yeah, like I love how you're like feeding your sense of imagination and all of that. It's like, it really is like, I think it's important to almost look at it like another form of nutrition. You know, how are we feeding our mind? Are we, are we putting a bunch of like you know, processed foods and like all these things that we know aren't good for us? Or are we like really nourishing our mind in a positive way? Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to have a really positive and calm outlook if you are sort of doing fear-based media inputs or or really pessimistic people you surround yourself with or messages. I mean, um, I know that that's different than sort of tools to overcome alcohol cravings. But I do also know that you're more 
prepared to overcome alcohol cravings if you aren't too high or too low. Like if you sort of stay away, especially in the beginning from overwhelm, resentment, anxiety, you know, or depression, loneliness, all that kind of stuff. And I know that some of that is hard to do, but other parts of it are actually choices we're making, you know, that, that we can, um, control, especially in those, you know, really hard first 30 days, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think there is some overlap too, like with the kind of like media conversation that we were having. I think a lot of times people tend to obsess over the negativity, like our brain has that natural negativity bias. So we tend to focus on the really scary, problematic, what we deem problematic sides of giving up alcohol and the bad things and the scary things. But if we can shift our attention towards cultivating more positivity, and that does go to creating really healthy boundaries around our environments, like maybe not putting yeah. ourselves in the situation where we're with a whole bunch of friends that are out getting drinks. You know, even if we do have the mocktail solution, like that can be great over time. Like right now, I, you know, I love going to weddings. I don't care if alcohol is everywhere. I'll have my mocktail. I really don't think twice about it. My first weeks, months, even first oh, year yeah. in sobriety, I was like an open wound in that situation. It was oh, like yeah. the worst thing ever. So we have to like really give ourselves the opportunity to have healthy boundaries in place so we can create more positive experiences around yeah. sobriety, build up that sort of like muscle of confidence about our sobriety. Yeah. And then once we feel more strong and resilient, we can go into those other. Well, types. and you're past the like physical craving stage of it, where like you said, you are an open wound, but for so many reasons, I mean, I know I pretty much didn't go out to dinner for my first 30 days, which I quit in February and March. It wasn't the hardest thing to do. But at the same time, you know, if I was meeting a girlfriend, we would meet for breakfast or lunch. We would go to on a walk together. I did morning workout classes. And then on my, you know, weekends, I would go to either the gym and sort of sit in the steam room or the hot tub or whatever. And then I would get like the chocolate, peanut butter, banana smoothie. So that like sweet protein unit tastes great thing that'll fill you up. You know, it is possible to be social without putting yourself in those situations that are difficult. And then also by like going to the gym and not forcing myself to be like, oh my God, I've got to, you know, run five miles right now. And just being like, you know what, I'm going to sit in the hot tub for 20 minutes. I mean, that regulates your nervous system as well. Yes, I 100% agree. Because the thing is, like, even if you could go back to the old drinking situations that you used to do and get through it, you're kind of reinforcing if you have an idea that like, oh, I'm an outsider now because I don't drink, like by putting yourself in that situation, you're potentially reinforcing a fear thought that's not necessarily based on truth. Whereas, you know, if you put yourself in situations like I love hearing about how people like discovered new art classes that they like going to or a fitness class, you know, Pilates, dance, like doing all these different activities that actually creates so many positive associations around sobriety. Like that's definitely been my experience where it leaves you being like, oh my gosh, I would have missed out on this entire part of my life had I not walked away from the drinking situation. 
you know what blew my mind? And um, I was, you know, in super early sobriety and someone invited me actually to a 12-step meeting way across Seattle. I'd never been before. Um, didn't end up being my path. I didn't, I didn't do 12 step, but I remember driving across the bridge from my area to Seattle, which is gorgeous. And it was in the summer and it was like 7 a.m., whether it was an 8 a.m. meeting or something, I don't know. We went out to breakfast afterwards, but, um, there were so many people running on the bridge, biking on the bridge out and about at this gorgeous morning. And, you know, I was used to on a Saturday or Sunday morning, rolling over, opening one eye, being like, fuck, saying (laughs) I was going to go to 10 a.m. yoga, canceling because I didn't feel good. And I was like, oh my God, do these people do this every day? It was like this entire universe of like healthy, happy people that I was like, you know, it was just kind of amazing. And and that's part of it too. When you stop drinking, it's a great time to get curious on like what you actually have been missing out on. 100%. And I, the interesting thing is I think a lot of people drink because of burnout, feeling like they're stressed and they have no time. And then it's like you eliminate alcohol from your life. And suddenly, like you said, I remember I got in this habit of going to this Saturday morning yoga class with this amazing teacher in Chicago when I first got sober and I would go early in the morning and I would do the yoga, I'd bike to this yoga class and then I'd meet my friend and we'd go to the farmer's market. And uh, it was just- Farmer's like this, markets are the best. Yes. It was like this amazing routine. And by 10 a.m., I would just be feeling absolutely amazing. Like I'd have this community yoga class. He always had all these really insightful things to say. Then I'd be like having an amazing meal at the farmer's market. At the end of my addiction, I would be laying in bed so uncomfortable on the weekends until like past noon, you know, like I would open my eyes and be like, ah, you know, because it was an accumulation of just not sleeping throughout the week and the work. And it's just it's amazing to me because it got to a point very quickly, honestly, where I was like, I wouldn't give up these Saturday mornings for anything. You know, and suddenly it didn't really matter, like not staying out late anymore. I used to have so much FOMO about not staying out really late or missing a night out. And then it was like, I guard my my early nights now. I guard so I'm so protective of them because I love the mornings like nothing is more beautiful than waking up energized in the morning and being able to get outside and move. And yeah, and I know for me and I don't know about anyone else, but I actually really, I mean, I'm a pretty social person. And so I need that human connection, even if seriously, I like to go places, you know, because I work from home, and just be around people, even if I'm not with them, like I'll go out to lunch and just look at people and listen to their conversations. Not everyone is into that. But like, you did yoga, I did a morning workout group, like, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And that was so helpful. And then getting coffee with people afterwards, and you're sort of shifting some of your social groups. So you see that not everyone drinks, you know, people who get up super early, like it was a 530 class on Monday, Wednesday, don't tend to drink a bottle of wine a night. I mean, I used to go to those classes, but I was brutally hungover and it was no good. And I canceled a lot. Yeah. And that's so interesting you mentioned that because 
with the group classes thing, something that was really interesting to me when I got sober is I always thought of myself as someone who is really extroverted and outgoing and loved being around people all the time. And without alcohol and drugs fueling that, I realized that I didn't, that wasn't really my natural predisposition. And I actually needed more time to, to spend on my own, but I could get that same like feeling of like filling up on social connection through workout classes. And there's this amazing book called Joy of Movement by Kelly. I don't want to get her name wrong, but the book is Joy of Movement. And she talks about this experience of collective joy that happens in fitness classes and how we can get these benefits of social connection by moving and breathing with people. And that was something that was so positive for me because a huge, huge thing for me, which prolonged me getting sober for years, like from the first time I went to outpatient treatment, it wasn't until three years later that I actually got sober. And that was because this fear of isolation. And it's something that I find to be a really interesting topic because I think a lot of us, because of the way alcohol has been so deeply ingrained in all of these social situations, our craving mind can trick us into thinking you're going to be alone. You know, you're- Oh, I thought that. Yeah. And and it's like- Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. It goes down to something very deep because we're like hardwired for connection as humans. Like we crave that. We need that. We like survive on that. So to, you know, even if you are someone who feels like you're newly sober and you don't have the same energy to put yourself in like going and meeting all these new people in sober situations, just go to a workout class, just be in that energy, even going to meetings where, and there's so many different types of meetings. You mentioned the 12 steps, but there's all different types. 
you don't even have to participate if you don't feel, but just to be in that space of connection and shared experiences is so, yeah. so important. Well, and the other thing that is interesting too, and I know everyone's different in their level of comfort or what sort of touch they like, but I also found it was really helpful for that sensory piece. Like there was a woman who came to our office who gave like chair massages twice a week and I loved her. And she would give you, put on your essential oils. Like I always had lavender and just kind of give you a massage. But um, I found just the act of having someone like touch you in a nurturing way that wasn't my children and wasn't leading to sex with my husband, what felt very much like I was being taken care of. And I needed that. Yes. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, that's it's interesting because when I've lived in Southeast Asia for a while and I feel like in the States, well, I know because it's very different, like the price point is way different and it's it's much more seen as like a luxury. Like yeah. I didn't I never grew up getting massages and things like that. But there's so many practices like on that, you know, side of the world. And it's much more common as a self-care practice to have massage and touch. And it definitely, I completely agree. It's a very nurturing way to feel connected to other people. And yeah, going back to the nervous system conversation, like there are different ways to kind of like co-regulate with safe people also, and just have, you know, through things like touch, yeah. for example. And you can get that as well. in like a manicure or a pedicure, like sometimes they massage your hands or your feet or yeah. you know, whatever it is. Um, I just think that, I mean, in my morning workout classes, they used to give us at the end, like this essential oil sort of infused, not towel, but something. And, you know, or like put essential oils on your forehead just with their thumb. And it was, it was so lovely. Yes. Um, and so I, I, the reason I think we're talking about this is the idea of, overcoming cravings and sitting with discomfort, but also giving your nervous system and your body a chance to not get to the point where you're at the breaking point. Yes, absolutely. And you know, what's interesting that comes up when you say that with the discomfort thing is I think for some people, discomfort, leaning into discomfort is giving themselves permission to rest. Like it's yeah. incredibly uncomfortable for somebody who is in that like workaholic mentality who, you know, feels like they've they've never done enough and the job is never done to actually let go and to rest and to give yourself a Sunday, for example, where you just do nothing or to surrender. I remember when I was first when I first got certified to teach yoga in Chicago, it always amazed me because even, you know, at this, in that studio setting, you have a very confined amount of time to get through the class. You're never supposed to go one minute over. And the Shavasana was very short, that resting pose at the very end of the practice. And it always blew my mind that people would get up before it was literally two minutes of just lying down. And it's such an important part of the practice. It's absolutely he at the oh, yeah. end of the yoga practice and people would get up and they would leave to start showering for work. And I'm like, how could you possibly tell me that those two minutes are essential for you to get to work on time? But there's this unwillingness to just rest Correct. and let go. And so, you know, there are so many amazing ways to strengthen 
like lean into discomfort by creating healthy stressors for our body, like through exercise. You know, I've been really into cold exposure lately. I could name a whole bunch of them. But it's also important not to trick ourselves into thinking like we always need to be like pushing and grinding, especially if our comfort is being in that space of overexerting and pushing ourselves too far and work, work, work. Sometimes the discomfort is being like, I'm going to let myself rest just because that's what humans need to do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and not only that, I think part of that is like internal boundaries, like forcing yourself to be uncomfortable with not doing everything or not. I mean, people kind of feel like, oh my God, I have to stay on on top of work because otherwise it'll be too stressful for me not to. And so they want to, I mean, this is me. I'll speak for myself. I used to go to my boss and be like, oh my God, I'm totally overwhelmed. I'm stressed out. I can't do all of this. And I would want her to set the boundary for me. I would want her to tell me, okay, take this off your list. Don't do that. And the truth is I needed to be strong enough to set those boundaries for myself. Yes. Um, and, and part of that too is in terms of like for, I mean, Gretchen Rubin has, uh, this, uh, book called the four tendencies and sort of this framework you know, and there are different ways that people act. Now I'm a people pleaser. And, um, and so that one was about being, um, more likely to keep commitments to others than to keep commitments to yourself. So for me, I actually found it was really helpful in the beginning to actually schedule things for myself that then I needed to attend. Like, meeting friends to work out or signing up for a class and actually connecting with the instructors. So I would feel bad if I didn't go or signing up for this massage. Cause I was like forcing myself to block the calendar because if I didn't go, it would not be fair to her mo- because someone else could have taken that spot. And so like this external pleaser, you know, you kind of have to know yourself in a way to set yourself up for success in taking care of your body and your mind to stop drinking. 100%. And I think there's such a huge overlap between people pleasers and people who struggle with alcohol because oh, like, God, over, yeah. yeah, it's, it's alcohol becomes an easy way to cope with, which is just like impossible for anyone to sustain always putting other people. And I think also there's a mindset shift around that where we can't really show up for other people when we're completely depleted and not looking after ourselves. And so I had a really interesting conversation um, with a woman who, Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, who talks about the seven types of rest that we all need. And her perspective was really interesting because, well, some of these rests, for example, are like um, mental rest, uh, social rest, emotional rest, but things like creating boundaries, like mental rest, not taking too much time in front of the screen or doing all, you know, work-related activities, whatever it is. But I love her approach. You know, she's a a very, she's a businesswoman and she does a lot of corporate consulting. And she's saying, you know, corporations too need to understand that if you have burnt out employees, that's not going to improve the final output of what you're you're trying to do, you know? So everyone individually looking after themselves, creating their own boundaries, respecting other people's boundaries, like it's beneficial 
to everyone because, yeah. you know, everybody knows what it's like to be around like the people pleaser who's just so filled with resentment. It's like seeping out of their pores. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, not pleasant. Well, and the, the other thing, um, one of my clients at one point said to me, cause she was working really, really hard. And I was like, you have to, you have to scale it down. You have to have boundaries. You have to stop working even if it is to go for a walk or watch a bad TV show or whatever it is. And, you know, because she was pushing herself so hard and didn't have those internal reserves, she ended up, you know, drinking. And what she told me afterwards, as we were sort of deconstructing what happened, she was like, well, if I drink and then I'm drunk, then I can't work. So it was almost a strategy to stop working in her mind. Um, And, you know, in my mind, drinking was a way to like either push through working at night or to shut off my mind from worrying about stuff, which was also in my mind a strategy. You know what I mean? Like when I was younger, when I was 22, I used to like drink and then be super hungover even before business trips and big presentations. And weirdly, I was like, well, if I'm so hungover, I'm trying not to puke. Therefore, I can't be nervous about this. I mean, it's so crazy the way our mind works. But that's just setting a boundary and then being uncomfortable with it. It's like working a muscle. The more you do it, the easier it becomes because you see the world doesn't end. But we have such a tendency to self-sabotage instead of doing something that makes us uncomfortable. Absolutely. And it all goes back really to that converse, the conversation about like learning to be with discomfort. And, you know, I've heard many people say now that like we have an addiction to comfort in our society. And there was a time that this tendency that we have to avoid pain and run for pleasure was really serving us. But it's just yeah. now it is so destructive. And yeah, any opportunity that we can find, I think also reframing it, yeah, in our mind, any opportunity that we can find to really lean into discomfort and then celebrate ourselves for making that choice, whether that's saying, I'm going to walk instead of drive, I'm going to do the workout in the morning, and seeing that as a positive thing and not as discomfort as being a bad thing is so beneficial. Like, I love to just now it's like, proactively seeking those little things, those opportunities that I can exercise that muscle of discomfort and, you know, taking the moment. They say one of the most important things for behavior change is that moment of celebration. So really taking the time to acknowledge yourself and say, I... I made the healthy dinner instead of going to take take going to do takeout. I got myself to that workout class and celebrating yourself and like celebrating discomfort as a positive thing and not a bad thing is huge. Yes. And you know, what's interesting, we were talking about this right before we hopped on here, but um, the Huberman lab, the Huberman podcast posted something yesterday. And if anyone hasn't listened to the Huberman Lab podcast on alcohol and what it does to your body and your brain, that is amazing. And you absolutely should. But he posted something about a podcast he's doing on managing your dopamine and said, addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. Happiness is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. The former 
emerges passively, the latter takes work. This is the part I love. As a general rule, beware of anything that delivers high dopamine with minimal effort. Enjoy the little things in life, of course, but keep the amount of dopamine scaled with the degree of effort to get it. And I feel like that fits into what we're talking about because obviously alcohol, cocaine, Adderall, they spike your dopamine really high with very little effort. And it does take more effort to go for a walk, to breathe, to um, do yoga, to take breaks. But that is what is going to bring you true happiness, not this short-term high that results in a low. Yes, I love him so much. And I, I just love how I feel like the whole sober community, whenever he puts something out like that, everybody's getting so excited. But it was such a good example. And he he also gave this great graphic that gave a direct comparison for the way different things affect your dopamine. And yeah. I've mentioned to you that recently I've gotten really into ice baths and cold yeah, exposure. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. That sounds, by the way, horrible to me. <laughs> well, just saying. Oh my God. My husband, me and my son, we like a hot box. Like in my office when I'm not on podcast, like I crank the heat to like 80 degrees. So cold bath. Wow. Well, the funny thing about that coming from me is I've literally left Chicago to live in a tropical climate for the last eight or more years. And even as the seasons had started to change, I've said, oh my gosh, now I moved back to Colorado. And I said to my sister, like, I'm starting to get really cold. I don't know if I can live here. And she's like, what are you talking about? You're always promoting ice baths and I don't understand. So okay, I'm not so someone let's who talk loves... about ice baths. Not going to try it, but maybe you'll convince me. Yeah. So basically what's really interesting about it, and I kind of, I had an, a cold plunge in my gym when I was living in Bali and I pretty much picked up naturally on the mental health benefits of because of this topic that we have been speaking about, like it was kind of just something I made sense of from my experience with meditation. I hadn't really learned about the science of it before, but I felt that by getting in that ice bath and training myself to feel the urge to jump out, but learn to drop into that deep belly breath and calm my nervous system, that there was a real building of resilience and power in that. And it wasn't until I moved back to Colorado just recently in July that I found this um, Wim Hof and Wim Hof breathwork and cold exposure trainer that was doing a workshop and I got to get really deep into the science of it. And it's absolutely incredible because ice baths, when you get in the cold water and you stay in for, I think it's a couple minutes minimum, your dopamine levels spike up to 2.5 times the baseline of dopamine. But the big difference is, and coming from somebody who used to love anything that would lift me up, like Adderall, cocaine, I like, I was all about the uppers. So the big difference, though, is that when you get that dopamine boost from drugs, for example, there is a serious come down and crash that you really have to pay the price for that on the other side. Whereas when you use these more natural forms of dopamine, it's more sustained and you don't get that crash. It 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 carries out yeah. for a longer period of time. And so I'm just and you can, of course, do that by taking a cold shower in the morning. And I always recommend for people if it's totally new to you to find an instructor 
who is hosting mm-hmm. workshops because first of all, it's a commu- it can be very fun to do in community. It's a great sober way to meet people. There's these communities I've now see happening all over the place. But I'm amazed by all of these natural tools that we have, like our own inner resources within our body, whether it's there are certain breathing practices that you can do, just like we used a breathing exercise to calm down earlier. There's breath work that you can do to boost your energy, like having a cup of coffee. You know, you can go out and go hiking and get that energy boost. So I think, again, like exactly that quote just sums it up so perfectly by Huberman talking about not going for those things that are just going to give you the instant relief or the instant boost. But if you can, if you can consciously move towards the things that are a little more uncomfortable, like being in the cold shower or the ice bath, you know, I know that's not for everyone, but hey. Yeah, I'm going to have to trust you on that one. And maybe someday I'll try it, but uh, not right this moment. (laughs) Um, That sounds terrible to me. But I've heard, and I think Huberman are also talks about doing the cold exposure and stuff like that. So I believe you and not for me right now. (laughs) Yeah, I get that reaction a lot from people. I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pressure you into it. Because like, there are certain things that are just like, nope, I think I'll pass on that one too. So that's That's okay. And the cool thing that we're talking about is that there are so many tools. And I think that um, if one of these doesn't resonate with you, find another one because it is, there are a lot of tools to get through alcohol cravings, but the, a lot of it is you are going to have to sit with discomfort at some point. And the more you do that, the stronger you'll be. I mean, I remember being on day 16 of not drinking, which I think is often sort of the breaking point, like the, you know, just the end of my willpower kind of thing. And, you know, not relying on willpower, relying on self-care helps so much. But that day, I just leaving work Friday, all the triggers, my boss, you know, time of day, day of week, you name it. I so wanted to drink. I was like shaking. I was, I cried. I was like pissed. And Um, I had just talked to my coach that morning and told her I was fine. So I was like, damn it, I cannot write her tomorrow and tell her I drank. And so I had to get through that discomfort. And I do remember crying and talking to my eight-year-old when I picked him up at after-school care and be like, obviously, I wasn't like, oh, my God, I desperately want to drink. I was like, I just don't feel good. I feel like crying. I don't this, you know. I just, I don't feel good. And he was like, mom, do you just want to sit on the couch and cuddle? And I was like, yes, Oh my! I want to sit on the couch and cuddle. And that's what we did. And I just told my husband, I was like, I am having a really hard day. And so we just ordered pizza. We sat on the couch, we cuddled. I was like, can you put him to bed? I went to bed super early, woke up the next morning, went for a run. And I was better. Like that was the worst day that I'd gotten through. I haven't had a day worse than that or a craving worse than that ever. But I didn't drink, right? And that's like whatever you have to do to get through that discomfort, but also take care of yourself. Yes. Oh, I love that story so much. And also what an amazing example for your son too. 
to see that like because discomfort and difficult emotions are part of the human experience and to see yeah. that your response isn't like oh i'm having a bad day this is bad therefore i'm gonna drown it out and be over here drinking all night well that's you know? what i did before that yeah. was my jam like but yeah it uh, was good and it was kind of nice yeah, that's so he's, nice. He's How sweet. Now he's 14 now and like six foot. And I'm just like, can like literally, I bribe him to get cuddles now because he is so sweet. He's like a golden retriever. But I'll be like, All right, you can go out to the, gro- you can go to the grocery store if we can like cuddle for five minutes. And he'll be like, okay, mom. And I'm like, oh, yay. Oh, that's <laughs> so nice. I love that. <laughs> That is the the key to managing cravings, cuddles. <laughs> yeah, to to bribe whoever will cut not <laughs> pets. Pets are great too. Um, yeah, they but, they really help. Yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, though, like having meaningful social connections is super helpful, you know, and not trying yeah. to isolate through those experiences and just get through it on your own. And you can get that in a bunch of different ways, even if you don't have a partner, a spouse, a kid or a pet, like you can find that, you know, through just acts of self-care, you know, through having kind, loving, restorative touch or smells or anything like that, you know? Absolutely. Acts of service, too. I mean, interestingly, like some people might not think of that as discomfort, but obviously it's easier to sit on the couch than to go volunteer and do something for someone else. But we derive so much meaning and purpose from doing that and the social connection piece. There's so many benefits. And it's so interesting to me the way that service-oriented work shows up in so many different healing paths, dating back to like, you know, ancient, the path of yoga, you know, has that written within it. And it's, you know, of course, part of the 12-step model and so many other recovery models. So. Yeah, I love that. Well, so I think you've given us some really, really great tips in terms of how to overcome cravings to drink, in terms of creating that pause between impulse and response, managing discomfort, building up your discomfort tolerance, anything we didn't cover that you want to touch on, suggest. I would say the biggest thing, if you are navigating early sobriety or you're even in that internal debate, I mean, creating the space to just be curious and creating spaciousness in general, as we talked about through mindfulness practices, just noticing if you are, if your day is just filled with so many stressors, so much external noise, to me, having these moments of mindfulness, whether that's creating a morning routine for yourself, inserting you know moments to go outside in nature. And the biggest thing is just these tiny habits. Keep it super yeah. tiny, easy. Don't put so much pressure on yourself. Oftentimes when I share, you know, the, the work that tips that actually work with people, it sounds too simple to be to be possible, mm-hmm. but that's really what it comes down to. And when you do notice yourself, you're in the middle of a stressful workday and you notice that you've actually made space to take two minutes of really yeah. conscious breathing or you've given yourself the space to go out for a 10 minute walk, celebrate it because yeah. celebration, focusing on positive reinforcement, all of that is so, so important to behavior change and 
and also just living a joyful life. I mean, yeah. could we all be? And as a as a people pleaser and a perfectionist and multitasker, I mean, I know it helped me to like get a routine, keep it not overwhelming, but like schedule it in. Mm-hmm. So whether it's blocking your work calendar for 30 minutes or setting an alarm on your phone or forcing yourself to stop and breathe, even though you feel like you don't have any time, like give it a try for a while because it does take time to build new habits. And if you are a, I want to cross things off my list, like my husband and I, every weekend, I mean, we have two kids, like make a list of all the things, you know, yeah, got soccer, got a birthday party, he has a baseball game, whatever. I literally put on the list in addition to like laundry and whatever, like nap or walk. Like I, so I can cross it out and be like, dude, I got a nap this weekend. You know, like <laughs> yes. it's on the list. Otherwise, I don't cross it off. Like that's bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all of that is worth celebrating. And remembering too, if you ever fall into the trap of trying to do it on your own or feeling isolated, lean into the supportive community. I know I touched yeah. on the idea of social connection, but it is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, especially if we've built around our lives around alcohol, that we're alone in this. And that just could not be farther from the truth there. And we are so lucky to be, you know, here in a time where with through technology, there are support groups for absolutely every form of yeah. addictive behavior, every form of mental health struggle. And so lean into that because it's, yeah. it's you know, social pressure. That. and. I mean, I love the book Atomic Habits. I'm a huge fan of doing that. And one of the big things that he talks about is changing your physical environment and that first step, get rid of all the alcohol in your house and sort of, you know, if you're going to do yoga or work out, like put out your clothes early. And again, not advocating anyone go on a diet or anything like that, just advocating like Pick one or two things that supports decompression and movement and taking care of your body and actually schedule it. But also he talks about your social environment and especially, or I wouldn't say especially, like no matter what, you want to join a community where the behavior that you want to add to your life is the one that's celebrated. Mm -hmm. So if you hang out with a big drinking community or you hang out with people who are workaholics, join a group online, in person, whatever that does yoga or meditation. I joined a running group and I was not a runner Um, and just, oh, you know, my morning workout group, like people who I was working out with, despite the fact I was 40 pounds overweight and on day four of no alcohol. Um, they started being like, oh, we're all going to do this 5k together. Do you want to join? And I would do it. That is very different than my drinking friends who I'm still friends with, who would be like, dude, we're going to happy hour on Thursday. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And it just normalizes that. That's such a good point because you can find groups of people, which are really important too, that are based on sober lifestyle, living alcohol-free addiction recovery. And there's also so many groups of people out there who, because of reasons like that they prioritize their health because they're a runner's group or whatever other reason, drinking is just not normal for them. So putting yourself in positions where 
not the whole world isn't revolved around drinking is also really, really supportive and beneficial to your sobriety because it re rewires this thinking of like, I'm an outsider because I don't drink to being like, wow, this is a really empowered lifestyle choice. This is something that people decide to do as a positive thing. And yeah. these are my and people. And they may drink, but their life is not around that. You yeah. know, it's just different. It's more. So I know you have a community too. So will you tell us about the work you do, how you support women in living alcohol-free and where to find you? Yes, absolutely. So Sun and Moon Sober Living is the name of the community. And, you know, I have a website that's sunandmoonsoberliving.com with resources and a podcast. And I, right now I guide an eight-week guided group program called the Holistic Sober Living Course. And so it is an online course. We have a different module every week that covers various topics. And then we meet once a week live on a Zoom call and we have a private WhatsApp group so we can support each other throughout the week. And, you know, kind of like we were saying, like a lot of the people I, we just met on Sunday morning and most of the people in the group outside of that group meeting, a lot of their life is very normalized, built around alcohol, because that's just what they've always known. So I love that opportunity to just come together and really connect and share our experiences and process. So that's my main course program. And then I also periodically offer these free online meetings that include guided meditation and breath work and training people um, how to incorporate those skills. And again, just sharing. I really am all about just creating a community piece to end the stigma, have more open conversations and just remind people that they're not alone in this. Yeah. And it's so important. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think this is going to help a lot of people figure out different ways to get through those alcohol cravings and get through discomfort because it's hard to do. It is. And yeah, but there are tools available. It's really just putting these tools into practice. But thank you so much for the conversation. I feel like we could just talk forever about this, but it was so nice to chat again. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.